Hello and welcome to Monocle 24's The Urbanist, the show all about the cities we live in. I'm Andrew Tuck. Coming up on today's programme. Taking news in our national lead right now. Moments ago, the chief of police in Minneapolis announced that he had fired four police officers involved in the arrest and subsequent death of a black man in police custody. When I say defund, you say police defund. One really important question when one asks what police are for is to ask, what is the shape of that police power that the state is providing its citizens? The recent wave of demonstrations around the world over the killing of George Floyd has put the police force back in the spotlight, particularly in the United States, where it's reignited the debate over the role of the police and whether forces need to be overhauled. Are there parts of the job that should be the responsibility of community organisations? How do you keep cities safe without making your citizens feel unsafe? And at the end of the day, what is the actual function of a police force in our urban environments? This is a question we try to answer over the next 30 minutes with my guest, Tracy L. Mears. This is The Urbanist. It's now been over three weeks since the death of African-American George Floyd in Minneapolis after a white police officer knelt on his neck for nearly nine minutes during his arrest. Protest and unrest first erupted in the Minnesotan city before spreading to the rest of the country from Los Angeles to New York and Philadelphia and eventually to the rest of the world too. The issues of race, inequality and police overreach have once again been put in the spotlight While some measures have been announced in the meantime, from changes to police budgets to President Donald Trump signing an executive order to create a database to trace abuses by officers, it's still not enough. In a moment, we'll hear from Tracy L. Mears. But first, uh, America's editor-at-large, based in New York, Ed Stocker, brings us a recap of what happened and those first few weeks of protests. The marches and protests that spread from Minneapolis to some 75 metropolises around the US have shown little sign of letting up, often flaring into tense standoffs by night. The crowd's refrain isn't a new one. I can't breathe were the last words uttered by Eric Garner, who died after being put in a choke hold when he was arrested on suspicion of selling loose cigarettes without tax stamps in Staten Island, New York, in 2014. 
Since then, the slogan has been reprised by those protesting racial injustice and the number of black men dying at the hands of often white police officers, many of them arrested for minor offences. What do you want? I can breathe. George Floyd told white officer Derek Chauvin he couldn't breathe as bystanders in a widely disseminated video shouted for the officer to remove his knee from Floyd's neck. Chauvin has subsequently been fired from the police force and charged with third-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. For many, it's too little, too late, as the world's most powerful nation's fragile race relations and years of endemic inequality once again bubble to the surface just like they did back in 1992 when police officers in LA were acquitted in the beating of African-American Rodney King and just like they did in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014 after the shooting death of Michael Brown. George Floyd's death, the same month that an unarmed black man reportedly jogging in suburban Georgia was allegedly shot by a white father and son, taking justice into their own hands, comes at a time when the US brand has already been severely damaged from its handling of the coronavirus pandemic. 40 million people are now unemployed here and over 100,000 have died from COVID-19. As one lockdown has eased in many places, another has replaced it, a curfew imposed by some 20 states and almost 40 cities around the nation. In the face of a crisis on two fronts, President Donald Trump has shown a reluctance to lead. As has often been the case during his presidency, the messaging has been contradictory and at times divisive, with Trump capping off a week lambasting social media and telling the world the US was severing its relationship with the World Health Organization by using inflammatory language on Twitter, including a racially loaded phrase from the 1960s that he claimed to know nothing about and referring to what he called thugs operating in Minneapolis. Marvelling at US space prowess at the SpaceX launch in Florida, the president did finally address what had been happening. The death of George Floyd on the streets of Minneapolis was a grave tragedy. It should never have happened. It has filled Americans all over the country with horror, anger, and grief. Yesterday, I spoke to George's family and expressed the sorrow of our entire nation for their loss. I stand before you as a friend and ally to every American seeking justice and peace. And I stand before you in firm opposition to anyone exploiting this tragedy to loot, rob, attack, and menace. Healing, not hatred, justice, not chaos, are the mission at hand. But while former President Barack Obama tried to quell racial tensions that also flared up during his presidency, sometimes imperfectly, Trump has sought to blame Democratic leaders and agitators. Trump said he would label Antifa, an activist left-wing group that is a loose outfit at best, a terrorist organisation. It appeared he had little legal authority to do so. 
Screeching convoys of police like this we captured near Prospect Park have been frequent around US cities in recent days. So too the images of aggressive policing. From a patrol car driving into a crowd here in New York City and a Seattle policeman pressing his knee into a protester's neck as he was arrested before a colleague pushes it away to a CNN reporter, black and Latino, being handcuffed and led away while live on air. I'm sorry? You're under arrest. Okay. Do you mind telling me why I'm under arrest, sir? Why why am I under arrest, sir? As often is the case during disturbances like these, other interests have also been at play. Reports of -of out-of-towners and fringe groups intent on causing trouble have been frequent. There has been vandalism and violence, from the looting of stores in Santa Monica, California, to the torching of a police station in Minneapolis, threatening to overshadow the peaceful protests. There are urgent questions to be answered, from institutionalised racism and socio-economic disparities to a chronic lack of police training and funding. But with a void from the highest echelons of political power, time will tell whether President Trump will make a televised address to the nation. How America can heal remains an open question. For Monocle in New York, I'm Ed Stocker. So what is the role of the police in our cities? This is a question that Tracy L. Mears has been looking at in depth. She's the founding director of the Justice Collaboratory at Yale Law School. And in 2014, President Obama named her as a member of his task force on 21st century policing. Tracy, thank you so much for joining us today. In recent days, there's been a huge amount of debate about the role of the police in the US, what their function is how they go about policing, which bits of the job should sit with them and which bits should maybe sit with other community organisations. And this is a question that I know you've looked at, asking the simple question, what are the police for? Tell us why you think that's an important question and perhaps your first instincts and beliefs about what the police are for. It's an interesting question. Just before we got on air, you reminded me that your listeners were global. And I think a couple of things are important to understand about police in the United States. First is the history. And that is, we have a long history of the relationship between policing and their use of force against primarily communities of color, African-American communities, formerly enslaved communities in which police were used to segregate blacks from other groups, to help deny them the right to vote, to create geographies in this country in which communities have been underinvested in. And we could see that in the COVID crisis. There are places where people don't have adequate health care, poor education, poor housing, and so on. So that's the first thing to understand. The second thing to understand is that we have what's called a federalized system. We don't have the same kind of policing system that you have in the UK. I've actually been able to work with policing agencies 
in your neck of the woods. It's very different. That means it's really hard for the federal government here to actually impose national standards, audits and such. We can talk about that later. But what that means is when you're talking about what police are for, you both have to think about sort of what is the minimum context perhaps in which you think armed first responders are appropriate to show up in any particular context? That's one question. And then a second question is how do you make that agency that uses that force in the context in which we think it's appropriate, how do you ensure that they actually hold to those limited powers? I think that's where I'll start. And then maybe we can explore a little bit more and follow up. So let's take that first notion then, when armed first responders should show up. Mayor Bill de Blasio in recent days has said that, for example, people who have carts on the street, street vendors, uh, often people of colour, should not be dealt with by the police when there seems to be some infringement of you know where their cart is or whether they have a licence. That should be brought back to the city and that should be a community response. It doesn't need armed first responders turning up and potentially getting into a situation where you suddenly have a, a flashpoint and, as you say, maybe a gun is pulled or, or something gets out of hand. Is that the kind of audit that you would like to see all cities do, going through the services that the police... Let's be honest, maybe many police services don't want to provide those roles either. But would you like to see cities audit what their police forces do? And how do we take this away and the funding away from you and give it back to the community? I think it's an important first step, but I do want to ask for a bit of an edit, Andrew, and that is, what does it mean to give that back to the community, right? Because one really big issue in this whole conversation is if the police don't do it, does that mean that the state itself isn't going to do it? And then some community organization that may not even receive any state resources is self-funded, perhaps by foundations and the like, privately provided, is responsible. In my view, when I talk about what police are for, I mean two things. And this is the second point that I figured that we could get to in this conversation. One is a question about what armed first responders do. That is one way of answering the question, what police are for. A second way of answering the question is to say that in the United States, the police power is the power that the states have to regulate for the general health and welfare of its citizens, right? And so, you know, providing public schools and actually requiring people to attend school, whether it's public or not, is an exercise of the police power. All of the regulation and state rulings that we've seen recently in the U.S. around protecting people from the transmission of coronavirus, that's an exercise of the police power. What that means is that it's the state that's providing it, even if the agents that are carrying these out are not typically armed first responders. So one really important question when one asks what police are for is to ask, what is the shape of that police power that the state is providing its citizens? And I think we need to have a really serious conversation about the set of public goods to which every citizen is entitled to ensure that their communities are vital and flourishing. But just to get back to your question, like at a minimum, of course, you should go through and figure out 
when is it appropriate to send an armed first responder? Do you want to send an armed first responder to deal with push carts? I think the answer to that is no. Do you want to send an armed first responder to ensure that people are wearing masks to deal with COVID? I think the answer to that is no. Do you want to send an armed first responder to deal with a man who is standing on the corner selling loose cigarettes in front of a corner bodega? If you don't know what story I'm referring to, I'm talking about the killing of Andrew Garner a few years ago with a chokehold in New York City. I think the answer to that question is no. Are you a supporter then of the the notion of defunding the police if the money is then properly given to other organizations that can step in? And you know, in the US you have a growing and vocal movement for absolute abolition of police forces and a different way of running cities. Do you see some promise in those movements or do you find those going too far in a different direction? I think one issue with this slogan is that it's been incredibly effective in bringing a coalition, a large group of people to focus on the issue that we were just talking about. Do we really need armed first responders to come and do all of these things? I think there's a lot less clarity about this bigger issue that I've been talking about, about what is it that the state should really be doing to support these communities that have never been invested in. It's been documented again and again and again, and most recently, as I mentioned in my Atlantic article, with the Kerner Commission 50 years ago. So, you know, my own interpretation of defund the police is something more like divest certain funds from how policing exists now. We don't need these armed responders to be doing all these things and invest those funds elsewhere in state and city governments. But, and this is an important but, we should understand that the shape and scope of those other agencies and services have long been vastly inadequate. And again, I keep turning to the COVID crisis, but at least the way it's played out in the United States, you can see all the ways in which lack of state support, government support for these communities made the U.S., at least certain pockets and neighborhoods, particularly vulnerable to this pandemic. Well, I think that's played out across Europe. And I know here in the UK, people are still investigating. But the way that COVID-19 hit BME communities was tougher. And also a sense that actually, even when the police were called in to ensure that people were obeying the rules, there were more instances of communities of colour being find and finding themselves with a policeman at their door than other communities. So I think that has been not just a, an experience in the US. Going back to your article, one of the things that this Kerner Commission came out to look at what had happened during urban protests in the 1960s. And as you say, it came up with the idea of community policing, of doing better by all sorts of people. But then you had, as you say in your article, you had these huge crime waves in the 70s and 80s, which reversed many of the positive things that had been done. And you also interestingly say that the other problem is immediate perceived public crises that the police charge off in one direction and often respond to something that turns out to be less of an issue than maybe the headlines in the papers are saying. And they do respond to media coverage and things. So when you put in place policies to deliver a fairer police force or to deliver fairer policing or to 
to change the very nature of what policing is and what the police are for. Do you think it is a complicated thing that when you have these moments of crisis, to hold on to that long-term vision? We had it here in the, in the UK. There was less and less money spent on policing, more money put into communities. And then when we had several terrorist attacks, everyone was saying, why are the police not well-funded? More money needs to go back to the police. And then you have a complete reversal of the process. How hard is it for states which are going through election cycles all the time to hold on to a policy for not just months but for year in year out decade in decade out it's incredibly difficult and one of the reasons why and i'm glad that this question came up because i can refer back to our opening conversation in which i talked about the nature of the federal system in this country because there has been very little national leadership certainly in the last four years, but over decades where there are no national standards, there's no national data collection, there's no real federal standards like an accreditation body, for example, that would require states to review their own agencies to ensure that they stay on course, right? So you have two things happening. You've got the political dynamics of each individual perceived crisis. And then you have a lack of infrastructure that makes it really hard for people who do care within the government to keep people on track. And those two things together make the task seemingly insurmountable. (laughs) Uh, That's why Tom Tyler and I tried to, in our very brief piece in The Atlantic, slip in an argument about the importance of science here, right? Policy ought to be based on science rather than moral panics. You also say in your article, there has to be this balance between the right for people to feel secure in their homes, which is a right I think everybody wants to feel, and also the right to feel that the state is not going to use excessive force against you. And it's a, an important balance. Two final thoughts from you. Do you think there is anywhere in the US as a city that is making positive strides in this direction? We've seen very clear leadership from Mayor London Breed, Eric Garcetti, Bill de Blasio. But is there a city that you look to and you think, actually, they're they're doing something that I think we should look closer at? And perhaps finally, for our listeners around the world, could you say whether you think if some of these reforms had been in place, we would not have seen the killing of George Floyd? Yeah, that's the hard question, right? So the first question is, you know, in thinking about that balance question, I think what that question brings up is the fact that these communities that we were speaking of earlier are not that way by accident. It's not natural. It's not organic. It's not because these people are bad people. It's because of decades, even centuries of lack of investment in a context, at least in the U.S., where formerly enslaved people had the beginnings of reconstruction halted in this country by white terrorism. We should be clear (laughs) about what that was, right? And so it's not surprising, as Ta-Nehisi Coates has argued, that there are communities that are marked by violence. And those are the places where people say, how can you take away these armed first responders? One answer is, well, there are other and better ways of doing this. And two prominent ones in the United States are Camden, New Jersey, where the police force was basically restarted from scratch. The officers were fired. 
There was a new police chief, Scott Thompson. He just recently retired, who was brought in and rehired his folks. They have, at least by U.S. standards, stringent use of force standards, did a lot of work with the police collaborating with community organizations. It is by no means perfect, but it is the beginnings of what we're talking about, where violent crime both went down and instances of police brutality went down. Another place I might focus on is Oakland, California. There's a a really great report you can read if you go to the Giffords website about how this kind of collaboration between policing agencies and community organizations were very effective in tamping down violence. I'd also, you know, take this opportunity to shout out Reverend Mike McBride's Live Free campaign because they were central in doing this work. So we have some examples of a start of this, but of course we could do more. And one key point here is that for those efforts to be super effective, they need to be funded deeply and at scale. And we haven't seen that in the United States. Your second question is if some of these efforts had been undertaken five years ago, let's say, you know, would we be here? I had the honor of serving on President Obama's task force on 21st century policing five years ago, and many of the 59 recommendations that we made at that point are echoed in the examples that I just pointed out in Camden and in Oakland. Would we be here? I think it is reasonable to say that had there been real investment in some of those reforms, policing as it exists today in the United States would be marginally better. But I want to end with this point that even five years ago, when we made these recommendations in 56 days, I felt and believed then, and I still believe, that we still need to have this serious conversation in the United States anyway, about what policing is for. And there are nothing about those recommendations that was about that fundamental question. Tracy Elmuelos, thank you so much for talking to us. An amazing interview. Thank you. Well, this is clearly a a debate that will carry on for a long, long time and is a, a super important conversation for all cities and city leaders to start listening about what their communities want. The notion of disbanding your police force and starting all over again isn't that extraordinary. It does happen, and it certainly happened in the United States with some successes. And the notion of what the police do and what they don't do is also a really interesting debate. In many European countries, for example, it's already the case that if you have a problem with somebody in your neighbourhood, but it's actually an issue to do with homelessness, then the police wouldn't be the first responders and they certainly wouldn't be turning up with a gun. And how communities interplay with the police forces is, again, a really interesting conversation, successfully done in many cities. And that's the only way that we'll ever end up with a police force that isn't just seen as outsiders, but is seen as part of the solution and how societies, how communities are policed, helped, aided, to be first responders in a broader sense, to be there to help all sorts of people in all sorts of tricky situations. It's a conversation that we want to follow and and watch over the coming weeks and months as American cities begin to change and adapt to life after the death of George Floyd 
and hopefully we'll begin to see some solutions and fixes coming to the fore. But that's all for this edition of The Urbanist. Today's episode was produced by Carlotta Ribello and David Stevens, and David also edited the show. And to play you out of this week's episode, here's Sam Cook with A Change Is Gonna Come. Thank you for listening, city lovers. I was born by the river In a little tent Oh, and just like the river I've been running Ever since It's been a long, a long time coming But I know